first, first of all, a shout out to you guys. I've really enjoyed the podcast. I've listened to them all, enjoyed them enormously. Hi, Connor. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor. We're going to go around and do uh, quick introductions. We'll start with uh, Bob, then go to Adam, then go to Stephen, and then we've got one short uh, announcement, and then we're going to hop into our interview with a very special guest today. Hello, I'm Bob Terrio. I am a J-enthusiast, and I've been a J-enthusiast now for 20 years, two decades, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this episode because of the guest that we have, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Adam Brodzewski. Um I have been very involved in uh, APL since I sat on the lap of Ken Iverson himself as a little baby and still doing APL today. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APL and Q programmer and currently the KX librarian. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. Uh, I'm a C++ developer day to day. Uh, but as listeners know, I'm a huge Array Language fan, especially if you've been following me on Twitter. I've been just nonstop tweeting APL and uh, other Array Language stuff. Um, but with that, we will kick it to Bob, who's got a short announcement, and then we'll get to our interview. Yeah, my, my short announcement actually is, uh, I mentioned in the last uh, episode that Tangent Storm was starting off a ridiculously early morning Jay show, where he was live programming Jay. And I've watched a number of them, and it's, uh, I'll be Honest, it, it, if you're, it, it's not so much about Jay programming, although he is definitely programming in Jay. What I'm finding fascinating is watching somebody develop a structure, um, uh, you know, and, and I, I just, I, I think of it as pushing the envelope. And a lot of the things I see him doing, I've played around with in the past. And you can see somebody else hit sort of an obstacle and then see them brainstorm around it. Each episode lasts about an hour. That's what he's limited to. But it's on uh, live on Twitch and uh, then repeated on YouTube because I believe Twitch only holds things for two weeks. So if you're interested in seeing someone who programs in J problem solve, and that's one of the things I find really good about J, you know, problem solve in real time. It's uh, it's really kind of fun to drop in and, and watch it, um, and it's it's been really neat. Awesome, yeah. So I'm sure, as always, we'll have all the links in the show notes for people that want to check that out. And uh, without further ado, so uh, our guest, who probably it's no surprise at this point because it's probably in the title of the podcast episode, uh, but our guest needs no introduction. Uh, our guest today is Eric Iverson. For those, the few of you that aren't going to put it together, uh, the name Iverson is probably familiar because it is the last name of Ken Iverson, uh, the father of, uh, you could call him the father of the array language paradigm because he was the one that kicked it off back in the late 50s early 60s um and probably eric can correct us if if we're wrong but you probably have more years of j experience than all four of the host slash panelists combined um <laughs> and uh you know we'll let you tell your your long history but most recently um you're the individual behind the j software company and the j language and have been uh, pioneering that work for the last, I think, three decades now. Um, so I'll pause there and let you do the talking from here. Uh, usually I say, you know, take us back to when you started Array Languages, but that's basically the beginning of your life, I think. So um, I'll, I'll stop talking and let you take it away. Okay, thank you, Connor, and thanks to the rest of you. Um, 
I wasn't really sure what to expect from this. I'm, I am definitely of the old guard and this uh, podcast, social media, you know, has uh, largely left me by the wayside. Um, however, I was uh, extremely privileged to be, you know, part of, uh, of a large gang of very wonderful people in the development of APL and then J and, and uh, definitely witnessed um, close up for, uh, the development of K and lots of other um, array oriented languages. Um, so I'm gonna just, you know, give a very quick overview of sort of, you know, my background. I, I'm not sure why anyone would be interested, but it's, it's the only thing I can think about to talk about because I'm not gonna talk about, you know, the intricacies of tacit programming in J. If you want to tacit program in J, download a system and go for it. Um, you don't need me to talk to you about that. So I'm going to just sort of go back. I mean, basically, Adam sort of set the stage by saying he sat on Ken's knee when he was a, a little guy. Um, well, so did I. And um, so I'm going to go back, not quite as far in my life as Adam, but I'm going to go back to 1962. Um, that's when um, a programming language was published, and I was 14 then, and in high school. And one of my main memories of that, of the years leading up to, to being 14, were Dad would come home from having worked at uh, the Harvard uh, Comp Lab as an assistant professor, and then he and Mom would basically ignore the rest of us kids, the four of us. And they would work on the galleys of a programming language. And you have to, for modern people, you really have to throw your minds back. In those days, you know, nothing was, nothing was automated. The galleys were paper, you know, paper, pieces of paper that were typed on. And all of the APL expressions were transcribed by my mother manually with uh, using sort of a, a, a planograph type device to write all those cursed special APL glyphs into the text because the technology at that time had no way of coping with them. So my recollection as a kid was quite wonderful. It was basically being ignored, left to my own devices while mom and dad were busy working on this weird book um, called A Programming Language. Um, I next surfaced with APL is, of course, my dad was always trying to get other people involved in it, but he never pushed. And that's one of the things I appreciate about Ken. So he gave, a, he gave a taught an APL programming course in the high school I was attending. And a couple of us uh, students got, uh, got exposed to APL, to programming. And again, at that point, it was purely a notation on the blackboard. We would write our exercises down with pencil and paper. And, you know, you know, APL expressions, APL symbols, but, you know, branching was indicated by, you know, a little arrow going out, out to the side and up back to the line it was going to or whatever. Um, of course, you avoided branching as much as possible. The, the next thing that I really remember was in 1966, Ken published a book called Elementary Functions. And I had the, um, the opportunity then, like all of Ken's works, they were all filled with exercises. So Ken was really a firm believer in, you know, here are exercises for the reader to 
really be sure you understand things and to expand your understanding of it. So the elementary functions text was filled with exercises. And um, I was uh, very fortunate uh, to be able to essentially write that, the exercise solutions to that book. And um, one, of my, one of my first and very few publications. <laughs> um, and then in 1966, um, I worked uh, at IBM uh, in a summer. Um, Eugene McDonald was my boss. And a couple of the high school students from this high school I went to, we were again writing APL notation, but, and just write a pencil of paper because there was no notation of it at the time on, on paper. And we were documenting a new um, time sharing system by IBM and we were documenting basically just to try to get provide a clear description to the developers of what the hell it was they were building because it was like so many of those uh, software projects it sort of it grew bells and whistles far faster than uh, um, the core kernel was developed um, so I'm, I'm going to try to speed this along I could talk about this forever but you take take as long as you want Eric this is like this is podcast gold um. <laughs> okay um, but, but basically that 1966, that was our, for APL, that was the watershed year. That was basically the year in which the serious APL implementation, basically on, on the, the IBM 360 started. There had been previous um, implementations on less adequate hardware with more limited capabilities by small groups of people. So there were some APL, you know, prototype APL implementations, but the serious work on a real APL implementation basically started in that 1966. Um, so that was another watershed year. And then um, 1968, a watershed year for me, um, I dropped out of university. I, I sort of bummed around the country, the United States for a year. I ended up in Toronto and got a job with Ian Sharp because he had a sympathy. Well, basically my dad had an in with him. So he gave me a job when absolutely nobody else would. Um, but at that time, they were starting to get in with IBM, IP Sharp Associates. And the first project I got assigned to, literally the, the day after I joined the company, was on an 1130, which was an early model of sort of a, what you would at the time would have called like a mini computer. It wasn't a big IBM mainframe. It was an IBM mini computer, 1130. And I got to work with David Oldecker on improvements to the existing um, APL implementation. And that was, that was one of the most critical years of my life because essentially David and I had the midnight shift at the huge IBM data center. And we would go in and the building would be absolutely empty. And we, David and I had total control of this 1130, which at the time was considered to be like, you know, it was quite a giant brain machine. And, uh, you know, we would, we would uh, use the punch card um, device to punch up our programs and feed them into the reader. And then, you know, with a lot of luck, we'd get to see an APL expression um, exist on uh, the 1130. And again, that at that time, it was a very limited keyboard, which is a theme I'm going to maybe come back to, a very limited keyboard. So it took three keystrokes to make each, each APL glyph. And the APL glyph was basically unreadable on the little uh, raster screen. But it was a lot of fun and certainly a formative experience for me. Um, and then in 1969, um, Ian Sharp and some of his um, 
colleagues had the brilliant idea of starting a time sharing service based on APL. So IP Sharp Associates uh, got uh, at least a model 50, uh, a 360 50 from IBM. And we started running the, the, um, the DOS version of the IBM APL 360. And then we immediately started work on implementing improvements to it. And that was the second really exciting uh, period in my career because Larry Breed, who was an employee of scientific time sharing, came up to Toronto because we, we were running the machine that was shared between uh, scientific time sharing and IP Sharp Associates. And Larry Breed was the lead developer, but I was a fairly serious junior developer on implementing the APL file system, which is really what enabled the APL time sharing service to become a, um, a, commercial, a commercial product that was of interest to, to business. Um, so we worked on that and then not sure. Well, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to skip forward fairly fast here. The one other, so I basically continued that career at Sharp working on improving the IP Sharp Associates, Sharp APL. Um, but it did take a year out to work in Germany um, on implementing an APL system on a Siemens 4004 system, which was essentially, it was an RCA competitive clone of the IBM 360, but it was with a virtual memory operating system. So the main thing that I felt pleased about on that project was that we implemented, so I was the lead developer of that implementation team. And we implemented, as far as I know, the first virtual memory APL system. So we had large virtual workspaces and the workspace would get larger or smaller depending on the requirements of, uh, of the program that was running. Um, so basically, I then continued in Sharp for in various roles, but um, I left Sharp as soon as it was acquired by Reuters in uh, in '87. So that's um, that's my APL career, 1968 to '87, nearly uh, 20 years. So I should probably okay. And and when I left Sharp, basically I I left Sharp feeling that I, if I never saw a computer again that would be too soon. <laughs> and I essentially, I essentially took three years where in the winters, I was a ski bum in Western Canada. And in the summer six months, I worked on construction, um, building houses in cottage country, north of Toronto. Um, so that's, I consider that sort of the first phase of my career and, uh, and my, my necessary mental health break of three years being a ski bum and a, and a construction worker. So maybe we should have, I need to catch my breath and maybe you guys have a question or two and then, uh, then I'll launch into the second phase, which was the J phase. So yeah, my, I have one question and then we can, I'll, I'll open it to Bob and Adam and Steven if they have one. So um, what was the year? Was it 1968? You were at IBM and then you went to, you, you bummed around the country and then ended up in Toronto. What was the year you started at IP Sharp? 1968. So yeah, and, 1968. Yeah, um, when I say it was at IBM, that was just as a IBM at that point had a very aggressive high school student program, not for APL, but for across the board. So I just worked at IBM for two summers, the summer of 12th grade, after 12th grade in high school, and the summer after first year of university. 
So okay. I was I worked for IBM, but just just as a high school summer student. So what I'm going to try and do here is, is sync up like when you did and didn't work with uh, with Ken. So I assume Ken was I think Ken, if I'm correct, was at IBM while you were doing those summer internships. But yes, but he was in a different he was in the research lab and I was at the Mahansic lab. So we never saw each other. But there was basically Eugene McDonald at the time was working on um, a system called IVSIS, which was sort of the first attempt to make a, um, a time sharing service. And their target um, programming language for that time sharing service was APL. So it was a two part thing. They were trying to make a, the ability to do time sharing. So they basically a huge gronking central computer through telephone lines or hardwired lines could service a number of terminals as if each terminal user had their own virtual machine. Right, okay. Um... And then, and then in 1968, I joined IP Sharp Associates. So Ken was working for IBM in research uh, research center in in New York for IBM, and I was working for IP Sharp Associates in Toronto. Yeah, and so what I what I think is really cool about that is that um, the first time we ever spoke, I had no idea that you showed up at IP Sharp more than a decade before before Ken did. Um, and then, so Ken, I think Ken joined, was it around 1980? Yeah, uh, jo- Ken, Ken joined Sharp in 1980. Actually, I mean, that's sort of one of the other, I mean, I've got a parcel of scribbled notes here, but one of the ones was that, you know, in, um, in the last years at IBM, Ken, Ken was getting, he was getting frustrated that he felt that IBM wasn't really behind APL. Um, you know, in the early days, IBM was quite strongly behind APL. The APL group at the research, uh, at the Watson Research Center was well supported. But as time went on, I I don't know what, it was the changing of the guard, IBM lost interest. And Ken felt in those last years that IBM was really not behind APL. In fact, I would go so far as, you know, he may have felt so frustrated that he felt that IBM was perhaps, you know, sabotaging APL. I mean, so we we had... um, a number of occurrence, and he had a number of occurrences, like, you know, basically PL1 was the flavor of choice for a while there. And Ken felt that, you know, the sales force in IBM was not doing APL. There was another internal, the internal argument within the APL group itself between um, the, the, essentially the newer, the newer members of the crew who wanted, um, who felt strongly that strand notation was the right way to go. And that box of a scalar should be nil potent. Um, so, and that was the group that essentially came to dominate um, the APL group at IBM. And so I think Ken felt that IBM was no longer really 100% behind APL or wasn't even 50% behind APL. And that he was, he was losing what he thought was a very important battle, the battle about strand notation and the battle about box of a scalar, the result of box of a scalar. And so Ken, at that time, um, essentially IP Sharp Associates was an ascendant. You know, our timesharing business was going bang bust, gangbusters. We were making more money than we knew what to do with. We'd already hired half, you know, um, um, Dick Lathwell, Joey Tuttle, Eugene McDonald, a number of the core key um, IBM APL people. So it was a natural move for Ken to move 
to Ipersharp Associates, because he saw Ipersharp Associates. I mean, we weren't just behind APL. We were totally dependent on APL. It was our bread and butter. And he also saw there was a, a very um, sort of in terms of the arguments about strand notation and the box of a scalar, the people at IPSA were, were very much not decided, but were very much going more in line with Ken's thinking on that. And, and the result was that, you know, Ken came to IPSA in 1980, um, basically um, sharp rejected strand notation and insisted that box of a scalar was an encoding of the scalar, was not equivalent to the scalar. And IBM with um, APLSV, with APL2, I was the better name for it, APL2 went firmly with strand notation, uh, that box of a scalar was nilpotent, and they followed through with lots of other changes in the language, which were sort of, to some extent, driven or subsequent to those those two key decisions. So I, that was a long answer to your short question, Connor. No, no, long answers are awesome. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's awesome to hear. So yeah, I'll, I'll pause and uh, give Bob or Adam or Steven an opportunity to ask a question. Well, I, I guess I'll just jump in and say a lot of this, this uh, it almost seems like free agent signings in sports with these guys jumping back and forth, you know, that somebody takes off and they look like a good team and then going to jump across and jump to their team. But um, it just, it must have been quite a, a feeling to be in the middle of all this with all this stuff developing. I mean, it's, it's real pioneering work after the initial pioneering was done by your dad, it it comes all the way through to you being in the middle of it. That's that's quite an experience to live through. Yeah, they were they were definitely exciting times. I mean, there was I was in a very funny position. I was in those years. I was head of the APL development group, which was informally known as the Zoo. <laughs> and so, technically, um, people like Eugene McDonald, Joey Tuttle, Dick Lathwell, and Ken all worked for me. But um, these were all very strong-minded um, individuals who knew exactly what they wanted to do. So basically, um, you know, my job was my job was great. I, I had my own projects I was interested in, and I worked on those. And I pretty much kept out of the other people's way. And also, IP Sharp, we had our we had a very talented development group ourselves. I mean, we had we had about twenty um, um, coders and who were you know intimately involved in APL and were you know making improvements to the interpreter but the, one of the things i have to point out there is that at that in those days the the ip sharp interpreter it was it was written in ibm 360 assembler so it was done at a very low level you know we did not have the productivity of c compiled language it was um, it was a it was a lot of work to conceive of and to implement a change or an improvement to the language, because that you know 360 assembler it was a at that at the time it was a a wonderful thing, but compared to the tools that people have available to them now, it was like it was like working with um, you know flints and stones and little sticks of wood. Adam, were you going to ask something earlier? Well, actually. Um... I took the liberty to um, ask in the APL Orchard if anybody had questions I should forward to to Eric. And I got one question. So 
you mentioned uh, this split. And wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, I'm not just dealing with you guys. I'm dealing with the whole social media thing. This oh, yeah. The, We're not letting it a, off the hook that easy. <laughs> this is a okay, first time fire, ever. And I had no fire, idea Adam was doing this either. So. Fire away. Fire away. <laughs> so, I can always um, say no comment. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're touching on the on the the split between the uh, the flat array model and the uh, the nested array model, and another another interesting split was that APL originally had a a uh, one based indexing, and it wasn't changeable. And then quickly there was added a command to to APL three sixty to to change the origin. Yeah, quad.io, yes. And then quad.io and, and, and so on. And um, so the one listener wants to ask you about uh, index origin. What do you have to say about index origin? Well, okay. I mean, again, I'm, I'm perhaps you're reflecting my, I, I'm not reflecting my J experience. I'm reflecting my APL experience. And that is that quad.io was a disaster. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm for, I and most of the people I like firmly believe that index origin should be zero. But more strongly, we felt that it should be either zero or one, but it should not be changeable. I remember once um, being at a demonstration at the IBM labs and um, some IBM lab in California. And Larry Breed had brought us in and um, one of the developers um, had been working on an APL compiler. Very, very, this was early days. He'd been working on an APL compiler and he was gonna demonstrate the ability of this APL compiler to compile a fairly simple APL program. So Larry Breed wrote the program, fed it in. It was like a one or two line, but it was a real program that did a real thing. And the compiler guy fed it into the compiler, got back the, got back the compiled results and ran it and it crashed. And after, I mean, literally a half hour to an hour of head scratching, it was, under, it was realized that the reason it crashed was because of quad IO. Larry had been thinking one way and the compiler was making a different assumption. So like implicit arguments like that are almost always a disaster. Um, so quad IO was a horrible invention. And again, it was like one of the things I think going back into those days, I mean, we, we got caught up in the same thing. We were adding at, at, at IPSA, we were adding quad things left, right, and center because it was like, it's like a discovery of a new toy. You know, here you can now have very easy ways to modify, tune, adjust the behavior of the interpreter. Um, but certainly with quad IO, it was a mistake. And so one of the, one of the earliest decisions uh, about which there was absolutely no argument in J was is that there was no quad IO and it was going to be zero. <laughs> <laughs> that just made me realize that it's effectively impossible to have a pure function in APL, um, especially if one of the verbs depends on index origin, because if you basically Ab use, if you use absolutely. IOTA, it's global, it's right. global state that you're re relying right. on. Um, I never made that realization. Because a lot of a lot of APL can feel pure when you're just building up functions, you know, juxtaposing them, and you have your expression. But uh, there are so many verbs that you know that rely on index origin. Uh, yeah, minute sharp. I mean, I was I was in the you know development of the interpreter, but I I know you know there were many stories where like in the application, 
basically we made our money not from the interpreter, but from applications, from like, you know, financial consolidation systems, financial forecasting system, database um, inquiry systems. And on more than one equation, we had situations where like an APL development group who, a small programming group, and their mandate, you know, they basically work with Quad IO Zero and they develop all their stuff in Quad IO Zero. And then at another development group with a completely unrelated product, they would develop in Quad IO One because they preferred it. And then somebody would come along with a bright idea of like, wow, we could have a fantastic new product if we just merge those two things together. <laughs> I mean, it's like you cannot believe the nightmare you can get into. And there, it's by definition, it's the kind of nightmare which is very, very difficult to debug. Because, hmm. you know, it basically comes down to like, if, if you ran things in this order, everything worked fine. But then if you change the order in which things ran, it would have it, it would have um, side effects. Anyway, enough, enough, enough yeah, about that. Quad IO. <laughs> it was a bad idea, and maybe the best thing that Jay did was to get rid of it. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should defend the current state of, of uh, APL a bit. Uh, also to answer what Connor is saying, professional APLs today will make sure that Quadio doesn't generally bite them by um, localizing it or using namespaces. And then that means if you have two different modules and they need to work together, each one with their own uh, index origin setting, they don't interfere with each other anymore. So it's less of a problem, but I can imagine back in the day when the workspace was flat, all the names lived together. If you merge two, two and, and the quad IO was set for that entire workspace. You just merge them together. <laughs> yeah, no, no, even even in the even in the earliest days, you could you could add quad IO to the locals list. Um, but you know, that's that's kind of like the kind of that's the suppression of right, detail right. that APL is supposed to save us from. Yeah, it's that's that's that does work, but it is basically just making sure that you set global state locally everywhere. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a workaround for a design problem. All right. Well, we we probably have a couple more questions, but maybe we'll we'll let's skip back because I'm super eager to hear part two uh, of of the J chapter, and then and then we can circle back and answer or ask. <laughs> we won't be answering. Uh, we can ask all the questions that we have after that. So if you want, uh, yeah, feel free to resume um, part two of uh, the Eric Iverson history. Yeah. Okay. So I mean that that was sort of like the the AP, the APL era, and then. Um, I took my three years off and then, uh, you know, having sworn I would, you know, never touch a computer again. And then I don't know exactly how it happened, but um, so I'll make up, slightly make up a story, but it's the essence is true. I, I was walking uh, down the street uh, half a block from my house and there was a computer shop advertising a, uh, an IBM PC, you know, that was that you could just basically buy and bring home and play with. And it wasn't cheap. It was probably like five or six thousand dollars. But I thought, oh no, what harm could that do? So <laughs> I, I I bought the computer, took it home, and I mean again, I think I think computing is it's another one of these. It's a, it's an addictive characteristic, and it's, it certainly has been for my entire life. So I started playing with it, started programming, having a lot of fun, and then fortuitously I found out that. IP Sharp Associates, who had developed an APL for the PC, that um, this is a complicated story, but IP Sharp had the APL interpreter written in 360 Assembler. 
And then Roger Moore wrote an emulator that would basically interpret the 360 instruction set on an 8086 PC. So IP Sharpness says we were rather desperate to have a PC product because we, we, we saw that we were being left, left far, far behind. We were desperate to have a PC product. So Roger Moore, so we combining Roger Moore's emulator with the interpreter, we could basically plug on to any PC the, the 360 assembler language interpreter with the emulator, and we had a full IP Sharp Associate system running on the PC, complete, every aspect of it. It was, it was quite amazing. The main drawback to it was that it was fairly slow because everything was emulated. I mean, floating point operations, I mean, it's, they, they were all emulated. It was very, very slow. But IP Sharp Associates wanted out of that business because they were now owned by Reuters. They had zero interest in that. So I acquired the rights to the IP Sharp Associates APL. So I started, I, I, I incorporated a company called Iverson Software Inc. Um, it was just me. And I acquired the rights to that APL um, PC product from Sharp. And I started Marketing is probably too aggressive a word. I started shipping diskettes to vaguely interested people around the world, and they were floppy diskettes with a complete APL system on it that would run on, you know, basically any 8086 um, PC. But it was very, very slow, and so I got, I got very interested in essentially taking certain parts of the emulator. So, like, I then took the the eight, the the 360 emulator was running the 8086. I'm sorry. The, the 360 emulator was running the, eight, um, the 360 assembler code to do the syntax analyzer. That's the major bottleneck in any APL performance. So I rewrote the syntax analyzer in um, 8086 machine code and with a significant performance boost. And then I rewrote the floating point parts to again use native um, 8087, the sort of the uh, coprocessor floating point. Um, and it, it was a lot of fun and it made that APL system much more viable. But it was also becoming very clear to me that, um, the, you know, I was in a losing race because scientific timesharing had their natively built, you know, basically C language developed APL system. And, you know, my my working with this, you know, the severe handicap of the 360 emulator, you know, I was never going to catch up. I was never going to be competitive. So it was, uh, it was a fascinating artifact, but not really something that was ever going to get much use. Um, but coincidentally, that's exactly when Ken and Roger had now been working together for a couple of years, sort of while I was out west being a ski bump. And so I went to visit Ken and Roger um, one afternoon at Ken's place, and they gave me a demonstration of like, you know, sort of version one of the J interpreter, which was very, it was, had very little resemblance to what became J, but it was a, it was a, it was an array language interpreter. It was very impressive. And so I took a copy home with me and did some timings, and I said, my God, this thing, you know, even in this stage, it's seriously outperforms um, 
the, the, the 360 emulator version. And I realized that that's where the future lay. So then, um, so, so let me just give you some dates there. So in 1990, February 16th, I incorporated Iverson Software Inc. as sole proprietor and just working away on this um, vanity project of the 360 emulator. And then in, by, by May 15th, um, Iverson Software Inc. issued a small number of shares, a token number of shares to Ken and to Roger, essentially to give Jay a corporate home because up to then, I mean, they didn't have a business. They were just, they were just doing like what they like to do. So on February 16th, Jay had an official corporate home. And um, shortly thereafter, I dropped the APL part of the business entirely and started working with them on various aspects of the J interpreter. So like I worked on um, essentially the front end. So like a, the con what eventually became the console front end, you know, line recall, things like that. And also started working on the earliest versions of a GUI interface. Um, so a graphic user interface. So the first version of that were in a sort of a, somewhat of an abomination called Gem, which sort of preceded, was an early competitor to window to the Windows API, but then that quickly got converted to essentially a, a Windows API based graphical user interface to the J back engine that, that Ken and Roger developing. And in, those, in that, those first few months, it's also when we tackled the problem of the character set. And because up to that point, Roger and Ken were still trying to retain the, the APL characters that not exactly, with, not with the same definitions, because some places they just plain couldn't because they wanted to make changes, but they were still trying to preserve the idea of special glyphs. And then there were some you know, violent arguments, not just for me, but from a lot of people saying, listen, Ken and Roger, you know, this, Unicode is great, but it's not cutting it and we've got to move on and we're sick and tired of fighting this character set problem. Let's see what you can do with an ASCII spelling. And again, I, I can come back and talk more about this, but I think, you know, what Ken and Roger came up with that in the ASCII spelling was just as miraculous and just as inventive and just as amazing as what had been done 30 years earlier with the APL character set. I think, you know, you can quibble about, I prefer this, I prefer that, but I don't, I find it hard to believe that anybody could argue that the work done on the APL glyphs is any, any different than the significance of the work that was done on the, the, the J ASCII spelling. I think the J ASCII spelling is um, inspired. Um, you may still prefer the APL character set, but that's not saying the, AS, the J spelling isn't inspired. Um, so we can come back to the character set if people want to, but I'd like to just plow ahead and finish off th this thing. So May 15th, uh, 1990, um, uh, uh, Iverson Software Inc. issued shares to Ken and Roger and dropped APL. And basically we were all working on J all the time, different aspects of it, but basically the three of us full time. And um, 
Shortly thereafter, um, Eugene McDonald um, got shares in the company as well. And he, could, he, he made, um, he was basically sort of the earliest critical user. Um, and then in um, the next milestone was uh, the 1990 um, Berlin APL conference. So it's held, I'm not sure exactly when, August, September. But by that point, Ken and Roger, Roger Ken with the ideas, Roger with the ideas and the implementation had a, a very, to my mind, a very impressive viable J product. And Ken and Roger submitted a paper to the APL 1990 conference for Berlin. And as Gitta Christian said reports, um, there was serious discussion among the, uh, the the committee there as to whether this paper from Ked would be accepted. Um, Jay was viewed as it's a little bit like you know Martin Luther you know nailing his documents to the ch church door. Um, but in the end, they accepted the, the 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 paper was presented at the conference. It generated a um, a lot of some excitement, um, a lot of confusion and a little bit of resentment, probably mostly confusion. We continued to put along at Jay. Um, uh, basically, we got a huge boost when Chris Burke and his APL consulting company decided to throw in the weight behind Jay. Chris basically came to us and said, you know, he's made his, he'd made his career for years as an APL consultant, but he felt that Jay was a better way to go and he wanted to place his bets there. He wanted to, to work more closely with us and be involved with us. So we had a number of meetings. So then in, uh, the, it was basically sort of a two-step process. In um, 2000, April 17th, Iverson Software Inc. changed its name to be J Software Inc. And in May of 28th, we issued shares in J Software Inc. to Chris Burke and to his to his business partner. So that's that's it. Basically, my career, my working career was uh, 20 years of APL and 30 years of J, and uh, basically no regrets. Yeah. So I'll, I'll you know as always, I always have a thousand questions, but maybe you can just um, to to wrap it up. Um, although you just did wrap it up, but I'm I'm curious. Sort in the last. You know, what is the state of affairs? We've had Henry Rich on. Obviously, I think you've probably listened to that episode. Um, you know, Jay right now, I, I think I'm on the email list and I just saw like a, a version 903 beta has gone out. So, you know, what's the state of the affairs for Jay? Like, can, you know, if people are interested, you know, um, to tell them, you know, what what is the latest and greatest and, you know, what, what can they expect? Uh, we're, we're a funny company. I mean, like basically we started out where um, – you know, I'd gotten a windfall from IP Sharp Associates from the uh, the share the sale of Roy, of Sharp to Reuters, so I've had some de you know some degree of financial independence. You know, Ken was essentially in a similar situation and retired, and Roger was because he's so financially conservative was in a similar situation. So we've always focused on the language, and we've always focused on you know, making it available freely, making it available uh, as platform independent as possible, um, making it available essentially to, I mean, uh, to sort of, to people who wanted to use it as opposed to trying to think of, 
you know, a commercial advantage or anything. And, you know, our experience has been, it's, it's very hard for us to make a living from J because essentially, you know, a large J team is one person. And, um, and the J people, they tend to be as much as the APL people, but perhaps even more so. They tend to be sort of um, individualistic, eccentric and making their own way. So we, you, we have, we have, we, we have thousands of users, but they're not exactly an organized group, which is really good at pushing a donation button or making J mission critical within a company. I mean, more than one occasion, I had discussions with J programmers who love J, they love what we're doing. And I talked to them about, well, you know, could we, could we get some funding from your company, et cetera? And they, and they, unfortunately, the typical response is, oh, no, no, you know, if the company knew what I was doing, they would stop me. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a sad but too often true story. Um, but anyway, I, I, I missed, I think, the main point of your question. Um, J, J Software, we're doing better than ever. I mean, we sort of, um, Roger was the main and primary developer implementer for for the for the form for the key formative years he launched us on a trajectory which is really unchanged and and will persist forever um, and then we had a few years where very little was happening in the core language and we were putting emphasis on front ends we went through a you know a, a GTK version, a Tickle version, uh, and now we're using a QT version and a web browser interface to the front end. And then um, Henry came along, who'd been using J since the earliest days. And Henry was very interested in getting involved, deeply involved into the implementation. He's, so he's dived in. So he's now had many years of working on J. And it's really interesting. Um, with Ken and Roger in the first phase of J development, the emphasis was primarily on functionality, stability, robustness, cross-platform. Um, and with Henry, that emphasis has changed dramatically, but in a very good way to performance. So I think, you know, we've always been proud of J performance, but I think the work that, that Henry has done the last many years means that J, um, we, we, you know, you can prove anything you want with benchmarks, but basically J today can compete with any, um, you know, array, array language system, any, any, um, any language. Um, doesn't mean we're better in all cases, but we're, you know, nearly as good or good enough and better in some cases. Um, so the development of J is, it's just as um, ambitious and focused now as it has ever been. So we're, you know, we're now 30 years into it and it's, uh, it's carrying forward. Um, what we're trying to do now, and again, this is a bit of a, because I'm on a social media here. It's like kind of the first time ever that Jay has been on social media, other than, <laughs> other than the amazing work that Michael Wallace and, and you, Bob, do, from, um, is that uh, we're starting to open ourselves. We will be opening ourselves more aggressively to um, managing pull requests, so, for example, J has been available on GPL for a long time now, but essentially it's been sort of an, we update it daily, but it's sort of orphaned. We haven't really paid much attention to pull requests and stuff. We haven't, we certainly haven't encouraged P 
people to make contributions to the core engine. Um, and we haven't really even comp, uh, pushed very much people making uh, uh, contributions to the library, et cetera. But we're going to be making, we're making changes in that area now. It takes a little, you know, we're like a steamliner. It takes us a little while to change direction, but we are changing that direction. And I think um, in the latter part of this year and in next year, you'll see a lot more aggressive action on um, soliciting contributions across the board to the J ecosystem and uh, aggressively adopting those things in, into, into the product. And I guess the other thing there is that the reproduct will continue to improve. It will continue to be um, free and will continue to be as cross-platform as possible. So this is this is really um, exciting. And I think, yeah, we should uh, just hi highlight this a bit more. So currently uh, development on the J source code, uh, I know that it lives on GitHub, but is that primarily how um, Henry and folks contributing or is, is that just a mirror of um, sort of a different platform that the uh, changes are pushed through? Yeah, no, no, it's it's a different platform. Basically, we we have our own J software has its own private um, GitHub repo or Git Git repo, okay. which we which we manage entirely on our own. And it has it has maybe a half dozen people who can can access it, read it, write it, etc. And then on a daily automated basis, that um, the J software repo is uh, mirrored to the public GitHub repo. Um, so, and Henry, so Henry, all of Henry's changes are done to the J software proprietary repo as are some, okay. as are contributions from Bill Lamb and, and, and a few other people. So what we're gonna be doing is we are slowly, as I say, towards the end of this year and, and next year, we will be adding more people who are sort of in that terms are sort of like inside the tent who can access the J repo directly and their contributions don't have to go through a pull request. We're basically there are people who we vetted, we trust, et cetera. But the mirrored GPL repo, we're going to be, and again, this is a harder problem to solve. We want, we want people to make contributions in their own forks to that. But we also want them to be able to do that with some confidence that if they do good work, they will be able to send us a pull request and we'll have the resources to vet this pull request, bring it in, make sure that we have the proper rights to it, copyrights, et cetera, to it, and, and make it part of the product. So it's, a, it's an evolving thing. And, and quite frankly, I mean, J softwares, I mean, we're years or if not a decade behind you know, other software development people in this kind of development, but we're, we're starting to take it seriously. I think even if you are, uh, you know, a little bit behind the one huge advantage that Jay has is that at least as far as I know, actually, that's not true because BQN also is open source. Um, but of the sort of established languages, because BQN is, it's, it's in its infancy. Um, it's the only open source array language uh, that lives on GitHub. So um, you may be behind, you know, comparing to TensorFlow or PyTorch or something that's, you know, was born and actively lives in, in the open source world. But um, yeah, that's, that's really exciting because I'm sure that there's a few listeners that um, are excited about, you know, hearing about the J language and the history and the fact that, uh, you know, a 
pull requests are going to be accepted and encouraged in the future. Um, I, I definitely know that there's at least a, you know one or two listeners out there that will probably be interested in that in the future. So, um, yeah, that's awesome to hear that that's sort of the direction that Jay's trying to go. Yeah, the main – I mean, to date, uh, we're very happy with how um, the GitHub GPL mirror has worked. Very happy with it. Um, we just know that it could be done more. But I would say the main use of that GPL source um, is people who have – their own pet operating system, you know, some stripped down Linux kernel or uh, FreeBSD or um, we even, you know, Planet, um, what was it, Plan 9, et cetera. People have their own pet operating systems that they've been working on and playing with, in some cases for decades, and they'll take our GPL source and they'll port it to that. And again, this gets back to the stealth mode. They're doing it because they want to program in J on their private platform. They, they don't want us to do a pull request to do a plan nine port and for J software to support it. That would be, that would be a silly um, use of our limited resources. But um, so the main use of the GPL so far is for people doing essentially their own private proprietary ports. And for that purposes, it's worked very well. But we're also realizing that we're missing a major opportunity here because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of unbelievably bright young people out there who were, they were born coding. And it's stupid of us not to tap into um, bringing that talent on board within a J, within a J framework. I mean, I, I want to emphasize, I mean, for 30 years, we've been in concern with the stability, the robustness, the, the dependability of J as a platform. So we're not going to sacrifice that by pulling in code changes willy-nilly. Um, we're going to we're going to pull in pull requests to the extent that we feel we can manage them without sacrificing what we feel is our cornerstone, which is the dependability, the stability, um, the predictability of, of J as a, as a programming environment. One of the things, Eric, you were talking about was that uh, you feel it, at times Jay's now getting left behind, but in a lot of ways, especially when I started on it, Jay was doing things like the labs where you were actually able to program a sequence of you know learning points that you were going through, which goes back to what you were talking about with Ken. All of his information about APL was often the dictionary is often couched with examples afterwards, things to work through and learn that way. It's a very interactive way of learning. It's a very progressive way of learning. Jay had this whole lab system already set up in the, well, I'm guessing when it came on, but certainly when I came on in the early 2000s, it was there. It feels like it was going back you know, to the first five or 10 years of the language that you had. Absolutely. Yeah, you had this way of interacting with the language and learning in the language and that I don't know of any place else that that actually existed where you weren't just getting a lecture and then going back and doing things. You were interacting as you were learning. Um, and so you ended up with this lab system that since then, um, my cousin was, I was telling, telling him about the lab system at one point. He goes, well, that sounds like the notebooks in Python, right? And, and that's exactly what they ended up doing. And I think to some extent has become more popular 
But you can do the same sort of things. And I have played around with video and all sorts of things that you can do within labs. They're tremendously powerful, but they're this kind of parallel to what might be popular with other people. And I guess what I kind of hear you saying is that's kind of the area where you might consolidate in the future going forward. So there's an easier crossover. No, I, I agree. I think we definitely, you know, pioneered significantly with labs, but um, we have fallen behind there. We've fallen behind in two respects. We've stopped the core J group. We've stopped publishing labs. So there are no, there are basically very few new high quality labs. And more importantly, we've failed to encourage and facilitate people providing their own labs. We can do a lot more there. But we've gone from being like, I think the early, in fact, is still the way the labs work as being um, groundbreaking and, and very great. But things like, you know, Mathematica notebook, Jupyter notebooks, what's available in Python, we've now fallen behind. And we've fallen behind in an area where we've always been weak. And that is sort of the combination of essentially the blackboard and a notation, and then a computer executable sentence combined with the modern things that people want and insist on and are very valuable, like video, voice, et cetera. So, you know, our labs are, they're brilliant um, as a way of delivering a Blackboard lecture. They're not so great with the video and the audio. <laughs> well, and, and that's an area I've been playing around with. And so, you know, I guess to scratch my own back, I'll, we'll end up including a link into something like I put together an extended Catalan lab that's essentially a voyage through creating the Catalan numbers and you explore the language at the same time. It is a lot of work to do that. And that's one of the things that, and I, and I think we mentioned earlier in the show, Michael Wallace, he's another one that's done a lot of video. Um, I think actually what scares people off putting video into labs isn't so much labs, it's the video. It's a lot of work to put together video and to organize things. And I think when you've put together an idea of a lesson plan through a lab, and then somebody says, well, you should do this with video. And then they look at all the work with video. It's just like, oh, I did the lesson plan. Somebody else can do the video. Yeah, it's, it is hard. It, it is a lot of work. And, and it's a, it's a catch-22. Um, if you have you know, a million potential viewers, say in Python, you're a little more encouraged to do it. If you're talking about you know, you know, some thousands of potential J viewers, there's a lot less incentive to do it. And also, we're just not tied into that, to that mass ecosystem. So like, you know, you can do a lab, but how, how do you, right now we have, you know, a lot of our J users don't even use the J forum, which I do not understand, but they're looking, they're looking for their J information on Twitter, Twitch, um, um, remote chat channels. I mean, stuff I don't even know about. Um, and that because they're young and they want to do things the new way, they won't use the forum. So we don't even have a formal way of letting people know what's available because everybody is, it's like, you know, we have this tiny tribe of J programmers and then it fragments further into the guys who read the forum, the ones who will read Twitter and the ones who will only do Twitch. <laughs> 
and the ones on uh i guess yeah we should we can and add the ones on the, the and the ones on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, and we can we can add a disc. There's a Discord that is a, an amalgamation of all the array languages. It's currently called APL Farm, but they've they've talked about uh, rebranding. But yeah, it's it is definitely a problem. It's exacerbated by the fact that you know when you Google J, I mean, I I, I appreciate uh, the array languagers' love of uh, terseness, um, but I think in that regard, uh, uh, at least you know. At the time, I guess search engines weren't a huge thing in the early 90s. Um, but uh, so you see, you could not have envisioned the um, and, and to say, you know, there are other more popular languages with single letters such as C and R. So there's definitely precedence. And um, but, yeah, because J is a bit more niche, it, it is a bit harder to search online if you don't know to go to the forums first or something like that. Oh, you're, you're quite right. When we chose the name J. Um, oh, and, you know, Roger chose the name Jay and Ken went along with it. Um, it, it was, it made perfect sense. But when, uh, when, you know, search engines started to come out and become popular, we started using them a lot ourselves. We had, we had company meetings. We had violent arguments about changing the name and what should it be changed to. So I think we all agreed the name should have been changed, but we could not get an agreement on what it should be changed to. <laughs> So essentially, we decided to go back on back to work on things that were more fun, and we didn't change the name. I personally regret it. I think we should have, you know, almost anything. It's like the Quad IO thing. Anything would have been better than just sticking with a single letter. But I, I don't. I mean, there's no prospect of changing it now. Um, you know what we what we've sort of depended on. You know, is people searching for J programming language. Or for J software, but then you get into you know some of the a lot of the younger people you know they don't want to search for a company name, you know they would search for J programming language, but they don't want to search for a company name. So, yeah. So I wish we'd changed the name. Maybe maybe we will. Maybe that'll be next year's project. Who knows? I think now it's now it's well actually I shouldn't say, but uh, the question I was going to ask is was there was there ever a leading candidate? Uh, like a you know a trivia fact that you can give the listeners is like you know we almost changed it to this but we never was there ever a leading candidate or it was just arguments. Well, uh, well I could I could only tell you one and that was my leading candidate. <laughs> okay, um, what was that? Yeah, which is J J E H. Um, so it doesn't it would it would show up in hits. Um, say same pronunciation and it's a, an inside joke on Canadians saying a. Um, but uh, but uh, I think pretty much everybody else hated it. <laughs> it's funny you you talk about the the violent arguments and everybody I've met in in everybody I think earlier also you were talking about the fact that people are sort of idiosyncratic they they have their vision and everything and I I have noticed that about people who are in in array programming but I haven't noticed the the interactions I've had with people. I can't conceive of a violent argument. <laughs> I can conceive of a very opinionated argument, and and there's very strong positions held. But everybody seems to like. I really haven't had anything where there's any type of what would I say anger or emotion. I mean, there's there's strong feelings, but that's different. Again, there's a lot of there's a lot of listening. There's a lot of thinking, but but it's funny because everybody. Often I've heard other people characterize disagreements as violent arguments, and I think 
no, I've been in violent arguments. <laughs> I don't think violent arguments is what's going on. Yeah, you're, you're, you're quite right. My use of the word violent there is not, is not correct. Well, it reminds me of this uh, XKCD cartoon of mathematical symbol fight. I guess we'll link to that. Which, which APL or J symbols would be the most effective in a fight? So that kind of violence. Uh, Eric, I can, I can uh, tell you that it's good that the language wasn't named the J language, J-E-H, uh, because there's already a language called the J language spelled like that. J-E-H? Yeah, it's the human language spoken by 26,000 people in Vietnam. So if people were searching for J language, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> You're absolutely right, because no, we, we that was part of our nonviolent discussions. It was that any name that anybody proposed, we then realized, because we were then, you know, we were an incorporated company, we were getting a bit more serious about things. You would have to hire a, a lawyer and a firm to do a word search around the world to find out, you know, somebody else already had a copyrighted, patented as a natural language, whatever. And you get down to, uh, you know, you get, you get basically the leftovers. So we, we stuck with Jay. That'll probably what we'll continue to do. Yeah. I think that's the, uh, that's the issue that, um, you know, uh, Arthur Whitney's most recent um, sort of rebranding of K9 into Shakti is they had a bunch of ideas, but um, they ended up going with Shakti DB because it's so hard these days with all the, as you mentioned, Twitter, Twitches, et cetera, to get a good handle. Um, one of the one of the questions I wanted to ask is it spins off of a, a comment that actually I got a while ago on LinkedIn. I think I had posted either a YouTube video or a, a podcast, and um, one of my former colleagues had had pointed out or or made the comment that uh, Jay is just APL on steroids. And uh, I've heard before also too is that you can think of as um, Jay is just it's another APL. Like it's it has a differently named. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's not APL two or APL three or something, but it's, it is an evolved APL. And, and seen as we have you here, I'd, I wonder if you want to just comment in general on that sentiment. And then also too, obviously there's a, there's a, a different set of ideas that are in J and, um, if I'm not sure if it's possible to, or it's just a long list, or when you think about the difference between sort of, um, J as an Iversonian language and APL as an Iversonian language, what are the biggest things that sort of stand out as, you know, deltas between the two? Um, so I know that there was a lot of questions there, but. J as the name of the language was literally, as Roger said, it was, you know, he needed a, a file name to save it. And, um, you know, J programmers are only capable of typing one letter at a time. So it was J. Um, and, but there was also, there was at the time, I mean, it's hard to remember it now, but at the time there was serious pushback from the APL community. Um, you know, Ken and Roger's work was not welcomed right off the bat. Um, and, and in some ways it's still not welcomed. It was seen as, you know, we'd had the APL2 and the Sharp APL schism over strand and, and, and the box scalar. And yet, you know, here were people coming in again, trying to create another schism. Um, and the real feeling, so like at the, as I say, you know, there was serious discussion at the APL 90 conference proceedings that they were not gonna accept a paper from Ken and Roger um, because it was about, you know, something that wasn't APL. And then there was another um, conference in Stanford, um, APL conference a year or two later, where there was a, it was a panel discussion um, 
with sort of the, you know, the leading APL talking heads about whether Jay was APL or not, and whether Jay should be included in the APL family or not. So there's a, it's, I think it's well past now, but there was in those early days, there was, there was some, um, some animosity, some ill feeling. And, and, and rightly so, schisms are not good. We have a, you know, the array, array programming outlook. I mean, Ken's key ideas are the same across all of them. And, but, it's, but they're adopted by relatively small community. And so to take a relatively small community and split it to, you know, APL2 and Sharp APL, and then to split it again with APL and J, and then to split it again with K, and to split it again with Nial, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't make good commercial sense. It may make, um, you know, may make for a lot of, you know, personal technical satisfaction, but commercially it's a disaster. Um, so I forget the question, my, my apologies. Okay, so the overlap between J, let, let, let's be very fairly specific. The overlap between J and Dialog APL is, is great, it's considerable. Um, the, um, the, and, and the fact that Roger Huey worked the last many years at Dialog brought into Dialog a lot of the J ideas, which were not radical ideas. They were ideas which you know, really made perfect sense in the APL concept. Um, so, so in some senses, Dialog APL has caught up with some of the interesting ideas of J. Dialog has also pushed ahead in other areas where it's you know, um, different and ahead of J in areas. Um, but I think the, the key, the three key areas where they differ are the, the spelling. So the APL glyphs versus um, the, the J ASCII spelling scheme. So that's one difference. The second difference is strand notation, which um, I think Ken and the people at Sharp and uh, certainly, and most of the people at J, if, they, if they're even aware of the, the, um, the controversy, are violently against strand notation. But, and, but dialogue has strand notation and they're, you know, right now because of, you know, commercial continuity, et cetera, they, they're probably, they're never gonna be able to get rid of it even if they wanted to. And then the other is, you know, the, what Adam referred to as the flat versus nested um, uh, array, sort of the, whether the box of a scalar is still potent or not. So those are probably, those are the three important differences. And then there are a couple of minor differences like the way Jay broke um, reduction and scan into two symbols. Um, but pretty much everything else that is done in J can be done in, a, can be done in, in Dialog APL. Um, so those are three differences. And I think, you know, in terms of the scheme of what they have in common, those are trivial differences. And, and you know, quite frankly, a, a programmer who is a good programmer, who, who really has taken on board the idea of uh, notation as a tool of thought, a good programmer in APL, Dialog APL, can over a week become just as good a programmer in J and vice versa. So as communities, we should realize 
that our enemy is not each other. Our enemy is, and it changes from day to day because there's so many fads here, but our enemy today <laughs> is probably Python to, to make an example. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because um, that, that made me right there just completely remember what Henry said is when I think someone asked, we asked him when he was on the podcast about the, the spelling differences, Unicode versus Digraph. And he sort of just like hand wave. He's, he's, he's like, you know, I, I, I read J, so that's what I know how to read. But, you know, it's just honestly, I don't think spelling is that in, important. Like I think people make a big deal about it, but anyone that can read J can read APL and vice versa. It's, um, and he, he sort of didn't really seem like he had a preference. He's, you know, J is the, is the tool that I learned and I'm super happy with it. But you know, if, um, if, if it were one way or the other, he, yeah, he sort of, his, his remark was the same was that, um, anyone that is proficient in one can very easily be proficient in the other. Yeah. I mean, I can, I want to, I want to sort of, you know, you, it's not like you just, you know, if you're, if you're proficient in J, you don't just the next minute start reading APL. I mean, it's like, it's like, if it's worth doing, it's worth putting, investing some effort into it and maybe like a weekend or a week, but after a weekend or a week, you would be, if you're a good program in J, you'll be a good program in APL and, and vice versa. Um, you know, this, this ties back to, you know, one of, one of my things like, so my, my programming experience, I mean, like I, I wrote in various machine, machine language coding, and then I wrote, you know, various assemblers, and then I vote, wrote in C, and then I wrote in Java, and I wrote all these different languages. And those were always my primary languages. So my programming, I've done far more programming of that type than I have of either J or APL. I don't consider myself a J or an APL programmer. I never did consider myself an APL programmer. I don't consider myself a J programmer today because most of my experience was in those other languages, much lower level languages. But you know, Ken, Ken, in all of his books, he emphasizes every one of his book, the exercises. And he always, I have a quote here, okay. Here's a quote from Elementary Functions from Ken. He says, to write programs, one must first lean, learn to read programs critically. And this ties back into notation as a tool of thought. If you're a good programmer in machine language, if you understand the principles of a tool of thought, you can be a good machine language programmer. You will organize your thing so it's not spaghetti code branches all over the place it will be modular it will be you know it will be structured in the ideal way to solve the problem at hand and that applies to any language so you you can code c using all of the principles of notation as a tool of thought and it'll be good c programming um, but once you so that that applies across all programming languages but once you start talking about languages that are so close together as J and APL, I mean, to my mind, the differences really are insignificant. What you have to say is, you know, well, if you have a paying customer, what does the customer want? Um, if you have a, a, a backlog of like similar applications and code that you can read and lift from and learn from, in a particular language, that's your language you chose. If you have a slight preference in one, or if you have a platform dependency, that's how you make your choice. You should not be making a choice because, well, I only code an APL and I'm not gonna touch that J stuff no matter what. Yeah, no, I, I 
I completely agree. And that's, that sounds like almost an amazing way to, to wrap up with that, that quote. I will, um, say that we, we shouldn't end without noting that that book elementary functions is available on the J software website. If I recall correctly, um, it was scanned to, to PDF form. Is that, that's correct, right? Eric? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is there along, so, along with, along with many others. Yeah. Yeah. So we will definitely link that in the show notes. Um, and also too, speaking of sort of, you know, translating between J and APL, I don't know the name of this website, but, um, while I attended one of the J New York user group meetings a couple months ago, uh, one of the attendees there had gone and created this fantastic, uh, sort of dictionary lookup from, uh, it's just like a simple table. Um, but it's, it's similar to, I think there's a document on J software, like from APL to J vice versa sort of dictionary, but this one, it, it's all just on a single table. If you look up the, um, sort of, uh, English name or whatever, like alphabetical character. So if you look up uh, iota underbar it has the unicode symbol but it also know it knows that that's called where so you can look up where and that'll you know you just scan across the row and it'll show you that it's called indices in j and it's a capital i period um and so every single time i'm going from typically it's apl to j because I, I know more apl i hit up that link um and it's been the best resource in terms of trying to teach myself um how to convert things from apl to j but you can do it in either direction quick comment there i think i think it is a good resource and it's a good for someone who's starting that journey from one language to the other. But it is it is a crux. There are enough differences and gotchas. I mean, at some point, you're just going to have to, if you're going to be programming serious in a language, you have to invest some effort into it. Um, can I, I'm, I'm sure we've probably gone way over time. Can I just throw, can I just make one other, one other comment that I sort of prepared uh, in my, my scribbled notes here. And it's, and it's, but it's relevant to the character set. And I just want to point out sort of a, it's basically the importance and historical accidents in the development of technologies. And I think there were two really critical historical accidents in the history of APL and J. The first one is that if it, the IBM Selectric typewriter with the interchangeable golf ball, so that you could take off a standard golf ball and put on an APL golf ball. So you could now type the APL symbols. If that Selectric typewriter had not been commercially available the first year, the first time that APL 360 was coming out, um, my bet, and again, this is, you know, this is my own opinion because we, we really can't go back to the original source people for, for a definitive answer, but APL would have been stuck. They would not have had a way to present those glyphs. You know, the raster screens didn't exist. Everything was on paper and you had to use a typewriter. So if that, that Selectric typewriter with the APL golf ball was a game changer, it allowed the first hardware implementation of APL to come out with a typewriter you could use and paper you could read. So I submit that if that Selectric typewriter, which was driven by natural language requirements. And that Selectric typewriter wasn't invented to make the APL people happy. It was invented for natural language requirements. The APL people just capitalized on it. The next historical thing is, I think if when we were doing the decision as to whether to keep the APL glyphs or go with an ASCII spelling in J, if Unicode had been further along, Unicode existed. But if it had been a lot, if it had been further along, my bet is that J would have ended up with APL-like glyphs, 
But the fact of the matter is it was not further along. And we felt constrained that we wanted something out that was usable across platforms by anybody without special hardware, et cetera. We took the ASCII spelling. So that's, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, one historical accident led to the APL glyphs. One historical in for APL, the other historical accident led to J going with an ASCII spelling. Interesting. Yeah. It's, um, there's all these little, you know, historical moments where if, if the wind had blown like a slightly different direction, you know, how would that have uh, affected the fate of, you know, it's, we're talking about array languages now, but in many times it's, it's other things, but yeah, that's, um, it'd be interesting, you know, clearly you wouldn't have been having that. Uh, I think the, the conference was the one that you said in California it was in Palo Alto. Um, there wouldn't be that talk about is, is, does J qualify as an array language? Cause if they had been looking at the, um, Unicode symbols, they would have been like, oh yeah, we, we can get behind that. Um, so yeah, it, uh, I'm sure it would have led to a much different history uh, in some regards. Yeah, a much more boring history. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, unless if uh, Bob or Adam, if you've got any last um, comments or questions, I think with that, um, we can... We can... Only like so many guests we've had on, there'll be another for, you know another episode where we have Eric on as a guest because there's there's so much to talk about. Um, you know, I, I could suggest topics now, but we would probably get going again, and then we wouldn't wrap up this episode. So, um, oh, and if people do want to get in touch with us, uh, contact at arraycast.com. Um, that's the email address. And if you're just looking for information on the on the podcast, arraycast.com. And included with this episode will be a transcript and a bunch of show notes and links that you can click on and go to some of the areas that we've been talking about. Um, because, you know, if uh, I, I know there's a number of listeners who are relatively new to array programming languages, and that's a good way to come up to speed on it. There's a, there's a... These uh, these waters aren't the the river isn't wide, but it's very deep here. So you you can dive in pretty deep pretty quick. And yeah, the last thing I'll say is uh, just thank you so much, Eric, for for coming on and spending your time with us. Uh, this is uh, yeah, like this is by far the highlight of my my week, both you know pro- professional and non professional. And I don't think I've ever said this before, but I I listen to about uh, I run a lot, so I have a lot of podcast time to kill, and I, I listen to about thirty plus podcasts. N minus one of which are all programming language, technical related. Uh, and my favorite one is this podcast. Which is, <laughs> it's, pro- it's, it's probably bad to say that I listen to my own podcast, but um, I just absolutely love delving into like program histories and learning about sort of anecdotal stories and stuff. So yeah, this is, this has been a blast for me. Um, and yeah, I, I can't wait to have you back on again, hopefully in the future. So once again, yeah, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. And thank you guys. Thank you all. All right. Happy programming. Happy, Happy array programming. programming. I, mi- I missed the array. I missed the array. <laughs> I can't believe you missed what, the array. What, what, what were we talking about for the last hour and a half, Conan? Where were you? Where were you?